0: Hi, I'm Emma Shortis, And I'm Chloe Ward. Welcome to the Barely Getting By podcast. So on this,
1: the second episode of the Barely Getting By podcast, I want to talk about America, And Australia, because the big news this week is that Scott Morrison is going to Washington. He is, that's right, this weekend. So Scott Morrison is going to go to Washington to meet up with Donald Trump. And I thought I'd take this opportunity to talk to Emma about that visit, what it means today, and also what it means in terms of the history of Australian and American relations. So... First question to clarify what's going on. So Scott Morrison, he travels all around the world. He's met Donald Trump on several
0: occasions now. What makes this visit different? That is a good question because you're right. He has met Trump a couple of times. He's done you know a few overseas trips, but this one is is slightly different, and I think he's being touted as slightly different because Morrison has been invited to a state dinner. So Australian PMs go to Washington like pretty pretty regularly you know as part of the schedule they generally have meals while they're there often often with the president but a state dinner is different like it's a particularly prestigious event It's reserved only for heads of state and this is only the second one that Trump's hosted as president the first one was with the French president Emmanuel macron and you know things have Gone a bit south with Macron and Trump since then. But anyway, so the, and this is only um, by my count the sixth Australian Prime Minister who's had a state dinner hosted in his honour. So it is a pretty rare occasion, I think. Okay. And who were the other Australian Prime Ministers? So, the others, as, as kind of like every single thing you will have heard about this dinner has noted, this is the first invitation since John Howard got one in 2006 under the um, George Bush Jr., the presidency of George Bush Jr. but before that there were only a couple more so there was John Gorton and Billy McMahon both liberal prime ministers in 69 and 71 and then Malcolm Fraser I got 3 invitations liberal pm Malcolm Fraser that's, that's yep. a
1: bit greedy I
0: know 3 from diff- three different presidents and then after that it was Hawke in in 1989 so so not many pms have have had these special dinners in their honor okay so it's a, so it's a big occasion Going back to John Howard,
1: what you know, what I do hear in the press when they're talking about this upcoming visit to Washington is that, yeah, what we're seeing is that America and Australia have never been close, not since the days of the early 2000s, um, John Howard, George W. Bush, around the time of Iraq. And I was hoping today that we could unpack that a little bit and also go a bit further back into the history of that. So tell me more about that, that relationship with, between... George W. Bush and John Howard.
0: Look, you're, you're right, absolutely, that um, all of the mainstream coverage kind of is lauding this as like the first time since Howard that we've had such, so, you know, we've been welcomed back to, into the warm embrace of the United States, I guess. And it is it is really striking that that every single bit of coverage mentions that and not previous PMs. They just focus on Howard. I think obviously because there's a, you know, the, the connection of the Liberal Party. But it has been really striking to me how so much of the mainstream coverage it refers to this kind of warm relationship or the reignite, reignition of this warm relationship but doesn't talk about the reason that we had this warm relationship with the us in the first place which as you just said of course is the iraq war yes
1: yeah. so tell me about let's go back in time to say you know 2000 2001 leading into the iraq war in 2003 what was it about iraq that brought these two leaders together
0: so so if we go back to that time and to the september 11 attacks and the aftermath Howard, John Howard, the Conservative Prime Minister, Liberal Prime Minister of Australia, evoked the ANZUS Treaty for the first time. So that's the Australian-New Zealand-United States Security Treaties, first time it's ever been evoked. And he did that in the aftermath of September 11 in a kind of indication that the that Australia would support the US in in what, however it chose to react. And And as we know, the United States went into Afghanistan as a more immediate reaction. And then after that, the Bush... White House made the decision to go into Iraq and we followed and we were one of the only Western countries in the coalition of the willing which of course also included the United Kingdom didn't include most of Europe or most of the rest of the world which objected rightly I think and really strongly to this intervention in Iraq but Howard was there all the way you know that's why he was getting invited to state dinners that's why he was being spruced as such a good friend of America and Howard pegged a lot of his international credibility on that relationship. And I think it's really interesting and also concerning to see a yearning for that kind of relationship to return or a celebration of the idea that it's returning again. Because, of course, we are still very much living with the consequences of that decision to go into Iraq, of the Australian government's decision to go into Iraq with the United States which is still, you know, which is still playing out and which has has demonstrably not made Australians or Americans safer. It certainly hasn't made Iraqis safer. And I think that it's really irresponsible of mainstream political coverage to kind of completely gloss over that fact, that the reason that we had such a strong relationship with the US in the 2000s was because of war. It was because we went to war with the United States.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but... I'd like to know a little bit more about the ANZUS treaty. Like, so my impression of the the Bush and Howard alliance was that we were very much a junior partner in that. We were kind of, I mean, I hate to I hate to go with a journalistic cliche here, but we we're kind of America's lapdog, and we were just doing their bidding. Is that is that true? But is and is that also true
0: to the spirit of ANZUS? Uh, look, I, I mean, I think. Essentially, yes, it is. So the, the ANZUS Treaty, Australia-New Zealand-United States Security Treaty, to give it its full name, was actually signed in 1951, so it's pretty, it's pretty old. It was signed in the aftermath of the Second World War and it's it's basically a kind of tacit admission that Britain, the British Empire, is no longer able to provide Australia with the protection that it needs and so the United States is stepping into this sphere. So they signed this agreement between Australia, US and New Zealand, and it's designed to ensure security in the Pacific. So it's basically an an agreement to cooperate on security matters. And this, the ANZUS Treaty is kind of hailed as the, I guess, the backbone of the relationship, the foundation stone of the relationship between Australia and and the United States. But I think it's really important to emphasise what it actually is because often it's spoken about in the press and by politicians and and department of foreign affairs and trade officials as if it's a kind of mutual obligation so that if in in our hour of need the united states will come to our rescue in the in the event of an invasion or or whatever you want to call it but it's really important i think to emphasize that it's actually a non-binding agreement. Okay, So the United States doesn't have any obligation to come to our rescue. There's no no treaty obligation, no legal obligation. And also, you know, like the United States isn't exactly known for like upholding its international obligations well, consistently.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, tell me more about that. I mean, it hasn't, ANZUS hasn't been tested.
0: Has it in... Uh, I, I mean, it, it no, not not in the, in the sense I think that you're getting at. So, Anzus is essentially a kind of reward to Australia for sending seventeen thousand, I think. Yep, sorry, seventeen thousand troops to Korea with the United States. So it's a kind of kind of seen as this, like, oh, thanks very much for helping us out in this disastrous war. And since then, it's been politically tested. So in the in the nineteen eighties, the New Zealanders declared that they weren't going to allow any nuclear weapons or nuclear powered submarines in their um, maritime space, and withdrew from the treaty. hugely controversial. This tiny little country standing up to the United States, basically basically saying, "Get stuffed! Your so, nuclear subs yeah. aren't welcome here."
1: New Zealand's getting for it. New Zealand's got a longer history of oh, standing up to powerful countries, then you give it credit
0: for. I
1: thought it was just Cinder Arden, but...
0: <laughs> no, no, it goes mu- back much further, possibly before she was even born. I'm not sure how old she is, but yeah, so it's a really significant moment for, for ANZUS, and the Americans were like furious about it, of course, because New Zealand's saying, your subs aren't allowed in our space, and the Americans are not used to hearing that, right? Yeah, no one says no to America. No, exactly. Um, But the, the New Zealanders did, and they withdrew from ANZUS, and I think there were kind of concerns that it would collapse, but it didn't. The Australians and the Americans kind of reaffirmed the ANZUS Treaty in the 1980s. But beyond those kind of political tests, it hasn't actually, the substance of the of the agreement, the, the non-binding agreement, hasn't been tested. So the only time it's been actually evoked, as I said, was when Howard evoked it after September 11. And the Americans were kind of very grateful for that. But again, I would just emphasize this assumption that the US would reciprocate in the case of dire need, I think is just that it's an assumption and it's, and it's not based on a whole lot, you know, politically or legally speaking.
1: Okay, so what about the other side of that? I mean, what, what advantages, apart from, you know, being able to basically click the fingers and bring Australia into US-led wars, what advantages has ANZUS either you know, technically, formally or informally brought to the US?
0: Yeah, look, it's a good question, and I think that the kind of, I guess, um, defat types would would talk about the special role that Australia plays in the Pacific as as a United States ally, so that the United States and Australia are aligned against you know forces such as the Chinese, for example, which is something that's also coming up in this in kind of recent discussions of the Australian and US relationship. But it's about Australia kind of acting for and with the US in the Pacific in what the US would describe as its backyard, though, of course, it basically treats the whole world as its backyard. But beyond, it's difficult to kind of explain the benefit of ANZUS beyond that. I think, you know, again foreign policy officials would talk about how important it is, how important Australia is to the United States. But beyond those kind of times when we've been politically useful, politically or militarily useful, I I don't think the United States sees us as particularly important. And that, that comes out in kind of various ways. I think it came out when our previous Prime Minister, have I got that right, Malcolm Turnbull? Yes. Yeah. He's yeah. He was the, the previous it's, it's, one. It's very easy to forget. <laughs> oh, it's too hard to keep track of. And it's basically impossible for Trump to keep track of. <laughs> so. Turnbull visited the US when he was prime minister he met with Trump but they sort of got off on a on a bit of a shaky start when they they had a phone call in which that was leaked in which Turnbull kind of basically begged Trump to take refugees that you oh, uh, know right. under yeah. an agreement that he'd negotiated with Obama like what a political misstep to try and convince Trump to uphold something Obama agreed to him. anyway that's another story <laughs> I guess what I'm getting at is that, you know, Trump was quite dismissive of Turnbull in that phone call. You know, he got really – he got kind of irritated with him. And then when they actually met, Trump actually kept – he kept Turnbull waiting for ages. Like, he kind of was letting him know who was boss. Like, he was really late yeah. to their meeting.
1: Sounds like classic
0: yeah, Trump was, boss move. Exactly, yeah. yeah. It's very, it was very Putin-esque move as well to keep people waiting, just let them know who's in charge. Um, but it's also – I think what – you know, because I was obviously watching at the time – an indication of how much Americans are interested is that none of the kind of speeches or anything between Turnbull and Trump were run on CNN. Okay, you know,
1: so so even at a popular level, like there's very little consciousness of Australia.
0: I, beyond kind of like ridiculous cultural stereotypes and the idea that we do have some, you know, an ideological alliance and a shared history, I don't I don't think a lot of import is put on the relationship except when it's convenient, you yeah. know, except when we're going to go into Iraq, except when we're going to, you know, be a weird pawn in the US's kind of tug of war with China, except when it suits the US for us to be there and be prominent we don't factor much, I don't think, in in U.S. strategic or political calculations at all.
1: Okay, so you talked a little bit about New Zealand certainly, you know, pushing the ANZUS Treaty to its limits and basically now and now getting them to sell themselves into a situation where they're excluded from the treaty. Have we ever pushed the boundaries of that at all?
0: A couple of times. So, so it's, it's certainly not common. We've been very consistent across the kind of political spectrum between, you know, Liberal and Labor governments of being pretty staunch allies of the United States. There have been a couple of occasions, like in my own historical research, you know, Bob Hawke stood up to, to Reagan and then Bush on some environmental issues. But that was kind of seen, you know, as, as important as it was for um, Hawke to do that. And, and also, of course, it's worth mentioning with Reagan and apartheid because yep. Ron, Ronald Reagan was kind of basically refused to do anything about apartheid in South Africa and Hawke was staunchly anti-apartheid. But in, in the kind of strategic sense and the, the sense of ANZUS and the military alliance, they were pretty consistent with the US. There has been one really kind of notable time, I guess, in Australian history when, we, when our government did stand up for the US and that was, of course, under Gough Whitlam, in okay. Okay. Tell me more
1: about that. I mean, Gough Whitlam. He's he's known for being a rebel prime minister. What did he do to stand up to U.S. power?
0: But he was he was a bit of a rebel when it came to the U.S. So Whitlam tried to pursue a more independent foreign policy. So he kind of rejected, I guess, the imperialism of the United States and did quite radical things in in the true Whitlam style, like suggest that he would close Pine Gap, which is the American intelligence base in Australia that's shrouded by secrecy. Um, You know, the Americans basically have this piece of land and they're allowed to do whatever they want with it. Um, It's where they've launched all kinds of surveillance operations from. And Whitlam said he was going to close it, which absolutely enraged Nixon, who was the president of at the time. And, of course, in the context of the Cold War, any kind of opposition to U.S. involvement in the world in any way was automatically construed as communism. So if you're against the U.S., if you're standing up to the United States in any way, you must be a communist. And Whitlam was, you know, an easy target for that kind of criticism. And he also – Whitlam visited China Yes. In the 70s. Yeah, of
1: course. Okay, so tell me more about that and what did that mean for the relationship with the US?
0: So that was, that was hugely significant because that sent a really clear signal to the Americans that Whitlam was pursuing this more independent foreign policy. He was trying to forge a kind of middle ground between American imperialism and the rest of the world, recognising the kind of rising influence of China and that Australia is... In Asia, you know, we are we are in the Pacific in Asia, and he was kind of looking to the future of Australia's place in the world. And Nixon hated that. You know, the Americans don't like um, the smaller countries to pursue that kind of independence, and and so they had a terrible relationship. You know, they hated each other, but of course, Whitlam was kicked out of office.
1: Yeah. So what? Yeah, I mean, did what could the US do apart from you know? You know, apart from Nixon, like
0: getting angry at Whitlam and probably <laughs> illegally recording the conversation. Yeah, in which he did. They doing so. So the Americans were watching really closely what what the Whitlam government was doing. They were really concerned about the potential loss of this ally in in their kind of broader Cold War fight. And then I think a lot of the, you know, we've got to be really careful here because it's it's really important to get this history right. And a lot of the focus on on Whitlam's removal from from office, of course falls on the United Kingdom. Yep. You know, and because of the the role of the Governor-General and his connections to the, to the Queen, et cetera, which is kind of making news at the moment, actually.
1: Yeah, yeah. So um, an Australian historian, Jenny Hocking, she's been in and out of the courts for, I think, a couple of years now, trying to get some crucial documents, which are letters between the Queen and the Governor-General, Sir John Kerr, from the time of the dismissal, trying to get them released to the public. And she's been knocked back several times. And I think it was only very recently that she's been given leave to appeal that decision. So it's kind of a watch this space for people who are invested and interested in what exactly went on behind the Whitlam dismissal. But absolutely, that's one side of the story, which is these serious questions. I don't think it's a conspiracy theory. I think it is. A, there are serious questions around the palace's involvement in the dismissal, but you seem to be suggesting that the Americans may have had some role in that.
0: Yeah, and again, look, it's important to be really uh, careful about this and to be really historically precise, but there is evidence that the CIA was watching really closely what Whitlam was doing and that, that American intelligence... Bureaucracy, whatever you want to call it more broadly, was really concerned, particularly about Pine Gap and about losing their kind of access to those intelligence services, to uh, intelligence operations, to surveillance, etc., in Australia. And that, you know, were at least thinking about using their influence in Australia in a way that they have, of course, done all over the world. Yeah, for half for half yeah. a century.
1: Okay, so even if we're not saying that the CIA set Gough Whitlam up in any way or no, had any, which, we're, an definitely inter- which we're definitely not saying. But <laughs> you know, but there's reason. To, it, it was absolutely advantageous for Nixon to have to lose an Australian Prime Minister in Gough Whitlam, who was pursuing a more independent foreign policy. That's absolutely. fair to say. Yes, that is absolutely
0: fair to say. And I think it's you know it's important to emphasise that like. As we, as we say, you've got to be historically precise and not kind of degenerate into conspiracy theories. But the reason that those conspiracy theories have such traction is because, you know, American interference in sovereign nations is a historically established fact. Yes, know? It's yes. not kind of outlandish to suggest that the CIA has interfered with governments elsewhere because we know that it has. And, it, you know, this continues to this day, like, I don't know if you saw it but I I read even quite recently like in in the context of of recent events Mike Pompeo who's the secretary of state which is effectively the foreign minister of the United States so a really high up position and he's really close to Trump was in the UK and he was talking to a group of Jewish leaders about Brexit etc labor party and one of the people in the audience, this is leaked audio, asked Pompeo, would you be willing to work with us to take on actions if life becomes very difficult for Jews in the UK? Right, which is a pretty yeah. loaded question, yeah, yeah. Right? And, that's,
1: and that's playing into a very live and a very sensitive debate that's happening in the UK at the moment where the Labor Party, I mean, the Labor Party has been found to be rife with anti-Semitism, especially on its left wing. That's... and." Corbyn, Jeremy Corbyn, who is the leader of the, of the UK Labour Party, he has, I would say, probably kind of half-heartedly launched some investigations into that, which are f- turning up all this evidence of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. But at the same time, and, you know, this is absolutely not to deny that that is a problem. It is a problem. It is one that needs to be acknowledged and dealt with. It's also the fact of anti-Semitism within the Labour Party is definitely being used by sections of the pro-Israel lobby to achieve their foreign policy goals.
0: Yeah, much so as that is probably the, the context. Yeah, and that's the context for these comments you're talking about from yeah. Pompeo, right? Yeah, exactly right. So Pompeo's come to talk to these Jewish leaders in the UK in the context of, of these this kind of event. And then this, is, this for me is the kind of not at all extraordinary response but still really striking. So Pompeo responded to this question. It could be, and I'm quoting here, it could be that Mr Corbyn manages to run the gauntlet and get elected... It's possible. You should know we won't wait for him to do those things to begin to push back. We will do our level best. It's too risky and too important and too hard once it's already happened. So I mean that could be construed, I think, you know, from
1: what you're saying quite reasonably, as Mark Pompeo is saying that the US the US will be willing to interfere with the with the british democratic process.
0: Yeah, and that yeah. that's absolutely the way it was taken. You know, that's the way the UK Labour Party responded to it, which of course is, you know, a kind of politically expedient reaction, but it's also because, you know, American officials going out and s- Saying these things evokes a long history, a long and and kind of proud history in the CIA of doing exactly that. Of saying, you know, a Corbyn Prime Minister would not be tolerable to the United States. Therefore, we're quite happy to deploy our own, the the kind of giant intelligence beast from the US and all the money that comes with that in order to affect the outcome. Okay, so Emma, can you give me
1: some specific examples of, Amer- of American interventions in sovereign nations?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I've probably, there's probably too many to choose from. But um, the, the one that I've been speaking, well, thinking about and speaking about the most recently for probably, unfortunately, obvious reasons is Iran. So in the 1940s, a new Shah came to power in Iran and he claimed the throne by force. And then Sort of a decade later, nationalists who were led by the Prime Minister Mossadegh took control of the government and they, they nationalised oil reserves, um, which was basically an effort to kind of wrest back economic power, economic control to Iran, which at the time is held by the British. So the British are kind of profiting off Iranian oil industry. All of this money is mo- leaving Iran and nationalists make an attempt to kind of to wrest that back.
1: Okay, so it's kind of it, – it, it is an – actually it's economic nationalism. Yeah, it yeah. absolutely yep. is economic. And it's anti-imperial
0: obviously. Yes, absolutely. But of course uh, in the context of the Cold War much like you know when we we're talking about Nixon and Whitlam earlier any kind of opposition to United States or British influence in this case is construed as communism as an as an effort for a communist revolution. So the CIA creates Operation Ajax, it's called, and basically they plotted with royalist Iranians, so so supporters of the Shah in Iran and the British, to restore the Shah to the throne who'd been overthrown in 1953 and to kick Mossadegh out of the country and it worked. So the CIA has basically orchestrated a coup in Iran and the Shah, the Shah then becomes, of course, an anti-communist ally for the United States in the context of the Cold War he creates a secret police force that terrorises the Iranian population and he does things like buy something like nearly $20 billion of um, American arms, you know, when we're talking like 1950s, 1960s money, so it's not, you know, this is not yeah, small fry. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a significant amount of money. And, and of course, you know, more broadly, this coup has an enormous impact on Iranian history that we're still dealing with today Um and the role of the CIA in all of this, this CIA orchestrated coup, becomes really quickly known. Everybody, everybody kind of knows that the CIA is involved. The US don't deny it. In fact, within the CIA and, and the administration more broadly, they're like pretty proud of it. They're pretty happy that they've gotten rid of this kind of commun- what they see as a communist threat to the, to the economic order and to the established order of the Cold War by by ousting a government. Okay, So, it's, you know... <laughs> a pretty big deal. Yeah. And, of course, like we're still – we fast forward 20 years and there's a revolution in Iran which is decidedly anti-American in nature. So so the revolutionaries, particularly student revolutionaries, are, are kind of speaking in a way that's that's saying things like directly, like we won't let the Americans interfere in our country again.
1: Yeah. So, you know, so while this is – you're saying that this is – while this has been recognised and even celebrated, celebrated in parts of Iran and even in the U.S., it was
0: also used against them. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 20 years later, it leads to the Iranian Revolution, which we are, again, still dealing with the consequences yeah. of. You know, so, this is still the same kind of government since the, since the Revolution of 79 that is completely anti-American. Yeah, so
1: can we get into that a little bit more? Because I do keep hearing Trump sounding off about Iran. It. I don't want to say, you know, I don't want to say that it's looking like another Iraq, but what's going on there? Like, <laughs>
0: Yeah, what a question. Um, I, I Look, unfortunately, I think you can say it looks a little bit like Iraq. It looks a lot like the history of American military adventurism more generally. So Trump has been sounding off about Iran. He'd been sounding off about it since before he even became president in opposition to the agreement that had been signed under the Obama administration, which had, had seen a turnaround in Iranian-US relations that hadn't you, you know, was kind of unpre- unprecedented and, and was not foreseen even a few years beforehand. It was a really significant ag- agreement and Trump came in and said he was going to scrap it and that he wasn't, you know, for all kinds of
1: yep. Trumpian reasons. Yeah, why? What's in it for Trump to start interfering in Iran or to
0: undo this this process? I'm not sure even he knows the answer to that question, <laughs> but I think it, you know it's kind of the usual story. It's about the assertion of American power in the Middle East. It's about the complex web of alliances that the United States has with places like Saudi Arabia, which is staunchly anti-Iran, and also Israel, which is staunchly anti-Iran, and and countries there who have who have decided that Iran cannot have nuclear weapons at any cost. And this agreement was construed, the agreement that Obama signed with with Iran, was construed as a way of kind of letting Iran off the hook. Incorrectly, I have to say, this was a kind of gradual um, denuclearization agreement, but it's been construed as the opposite of that, of allowing Iran to have nuclear power and nuclear weapons. So Trump's kind of, I guess strutting about the world stage and and attempting to assert American dominance again. So that's why you see see this kind of posturing. But it's also connected, again, to a longer history of this relationship between the United States and Iran. So this anti-Americanism that is born out of CIA intervention, hugely consequential CIA intervention in Iran, is a source of kind of ongoing anger in the united states that how dare we have this kind of anti-american country who's who's threatening us who's threatening our influence in the united in sorry in the middle east and so there are you know certain figures in the u.s military security establishment who have for a long time wanted to go after iran for that reason going back to the kind of reagan years and and the um George H W Bush is and and this accusation that American presidents haven't been strong enough against Iran. And that's why you see these calls for America to go in again to the Middle East, to go into Iran. And Trump has kind of two steps b- forward, two steps back around it, you know, he's made some threats, he's he's kind of wound the back, he's made them, some threats again. I'm not sure, you know, what Trump wants to do. He he's the way he, it's kind of talked about is that Trump doesn't want to get America into endless wars in the Middle East. That was part of his election pitch, <clears> you know, that we would, we fight these stupid wars in the Middle East for no good reason. We get stuck there forever. What is the point? Which is, you know, not an illegitimate question. Again, it's one of those kind of weird things about Trump and, and his appeal. But having said that, you know, I don't I don't think Trump appreciates the history of American foreign policy and the way that the kind of military-industrial military complex works in the United States.
1: Okay, so you're kind of saying that it might not be, Trump might not be at the steering wheel here
0: in a way? I think in a way that's certainly possible. What the history of American intervention tells us is that once the wheels of that interventionist train start turning, they're very hard to stop. Okay, so there are a lot of
1: moving parts, yeah, and they're all moving in concert, and there's really there's no way of putting on the brakes once it's yeah. once it's really geared up.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I think you know you can kind of you can go back to to Vietnam and a succession of presidents, JFK and Lyndon Johnson, who knew who who talked about it being a disaster and that what kind of what was the point, but still feeling as though they had no choice but to go in and intervene militarily in these countries because of, you know, partly the military-industrial complex and that just the sheer momentum, the weight of that kind of bureaucracy bearing down and also this idea about American prestige and having to maintain American influence in the world, which again is coming up with Iran all the time and that, you know, America wins wars. Yep, There is this, this consistent idea in in American foreign policy and American military policy that America can win wars and when it doesn't win wars it's not it's not because of kind of disastrous political calculations or because we never should have been there in the first place, it's because of other things like presidents who who didn't let us win or kind of a politics or a, a protest that failed to allow America to assert its full might. And so that's why you get Trump saying things like, you know, I could finish things in Afghanistan, I could just wipe out 10 million people and it'll all be over, but I don't want to do that.
1: Okay. So what you're kind of saying is that there is, there's the obvious political story that I think... I've heard a lot of people have heard previously which is about America's assertion of dominance over large parts of the world. Yeah. There's also this this story of vested interests that stand to profit from war and that's what kind of keeps the wheels turning and makes war an irresistible conclusion these incursions into other into other nations foreign policies and in, you know into other nations domestic policies and then there is this also this powerful I guess psychological element to war and this you know it plays into America's narrative and America's story about itself that America is a country that succeeds, a country that it is always victorious. And if it's not, it must be
0: being subverted in some way. Exactly. And that that is Trump's exact message. So when people say that Trump is isolationist or Trump wants to withdraw America from the world, that isn't true. That's not what Trump wants to do. He wants to win wars, he wants to kind of go back to a time, an imaginary time in history. When when America won and won easily, and when America was completely dominant, and so that's that's what he's doing. When he says America first, that's what he means. He means America winning wars. He doesn't mean America withdrawing from the world. I think in any other sense, but that.
1: Yeah. Okay. So where do we come in? I mean, I don't want you know. I think I think maybe I sound like a bit too much of a conspiracy theorist, but you're saying that we have this situation bubbling that could go the way of Iraq, where we may have some sort of conflagration that would mire America at least in war in war. And that's this is similar to what happened in two thousand you know, from two thousand one through to two thousand three, where Australia was sort of dragged into this into into this invasion. Is that what is that possibly what Trump's doing by inviting Scott Morrison to the White House?
0: I I think it is at least at least partly that's what it's about. I think Trump is not necessarily Trump himself is not necessarily that strategic in terms of kind of thinking that far ahead in in constructing alliances, but I certainly think the people around Trump are thinking that way. So people like Mike Pompeo and John Bolton who until recently until Trump fired him or he resigned, we're not quite quite sure. They're having a bit of a fight about that. That was just that was quite
1: recent, wasn't (laughs) it? Yeah, it
0: was. It was quite recently. So I think that John Bolton, when he was in this role as national security advisor, had at least kind of part of an eye to focusing on the Australian Alliance and the importance of the Australian alliance when it comes to Iran. So we in the last even in the last couple of days we've seen quite a significant escalation of Trump's rhetoric around Iran because there was an attack on Saudi Arabian oil production facilities I think and Trump and Mike Pompeo have accused Iran of orchestrating this attack so it's not quite clear to us I don't think we don't we don't have the information to know if this was an Iranian attack or an Iranian sponsored attack but Trump has has definitely as a result of this attack significantly upped his rhetoric so rhetoric sorry so he he's tweeted out quite recently that they are locked and loaded ready to go
1: okay that sounds that sounds like a really glib top gun reference or yeah. yeah or maybe maybe you know joke about what's going on downstairs. Yeah, Trump. that's yeah, okay. very yeah, it's, trumpian. It's very trumpian. <laughs> Definitely. I'm so I'm sorry to put that on air. That's disgusting. <laughs> it's gross. But but
0: it is, you know, it is a, a kind of I guess the sort of standard playbook of the escalation of American I, I guess a willingness for America to intervene in in Iran. And Australia plays a key role in that. So in uh, in about August this year, just before Morrison went to the G7 meeting, Australia committed uh, a, a ship and about 200 personnel to American actions in the Persian Gulf, in the Strait of H- Hormuz, to, to ostensibly to protect freedom of navigation, to protect shipping lanes. So Australia's already committed personnel and um, material to the US's efforts in Iran. We're not, obviously, no one's declared war, but this is a kind of, as I said, a a sort of standard escalation and Australia, the Prime Minister, has, has made it fairly clear that once again, you know, we'll be along for the ride. And history suggests that that is exactly what would happen. So in, you know, looking at these state dinners, Australia gets invitation to state dinners, at times of war. So we talked about Iraq, of course, but we also Australian PMs got invitations during the height of the Cold War, which of course is is a hot war for a lot of a lot of the rest of the world, and the first invitations come during the Vietnam War, which again is a war that Australia is one of the few countries to follow the United States into unquestioningly. So I, you know, I think we're kind of seeing history possibly repeating itself. <laughs> A little bit here, which is not a very historian thing of me to say, but well, I'm saying it anyway. Yeah, well, maybe
1: maybe the pattern we're seeing is that it's easy to flatter Australian prime ministers and especially liberal prime ministers.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's that's actually totally accurate. Um, and, and I think that's partly what this dinner is about. You know, I would be extremely taken aback if the US does go into Iran and, and we don't go too. And I think that's what this dinner is about
1: in terms of what's in it for australia i think there's another issue that keeps coming up now that maybe wasn't so much on people's radar around 2003 and that's china so australia's increasingly finding itself in this vex in this bind between its trading relationship with china which is its most important economic relationship and its political its political loyalties to the us is that something that's probably in play and in the thinking of you know of foreign policy, foreign foreign policy officials and the government,
0: definitely, right. So whenever whenever Australia, the Australian government has kind of dared to push back against the U.S., it's usually been about China. So with Whitlam, as as we've discussed, it was partly about China. In the in the Keating years, it was also about Australia's relationship with China, which of course, as you know, as you mentioned, China is our most important trading partner, and and part of the the most recent visit by Mike Pompeo and other US security officials to Australia was about trying, effectively trying to get Australia to pick sides between China and the United States because the United States is engaged in this trade war with China, you know, which Trump, as Trump says, trade wars are good and easy to win. Like, good luck with that. But this is about getting Australia to to kind of choose between the US and China, which has been a tension that has run through the whole history of this relationship and and also through Australian foreign policy, right? Our relationship with China is a really – is a vexed issue and I think it's one that's often glossed over as a kind of geostrategic choice, you know, like a military choice about Australian safety. We had even fairly recently – I don't know if you saw Andrew Hastie talking about – the need to, the failure cont- to contain China is like equivalent to appeasement yes. in, in the yep. Second World War, which is like an extraordinary thing to say. But that is kind of the the way that it's framed around this idea of, of China being a significant military threat to Australia. And so the US is kind of, I guess, trying to tap into that about China as a global threat and that we have to make a choice. Is China
1: a threat to Australia in any way or? I mean... <laughs> My look my impression my impression of China is that certainly China is there are, there are glimmerings of undue influence, um, yep. particularly through the universities. China is trying to have more influence over Australian political discourse. My impression is also that that is not about Australia, and that's not about seeking any sort of political domination over Australia. It's entirely about China's domestic policy. Would that
0: be fair to say? Look, I think so. I think that that's certainly my impression, and that I think often China's kind of domestic ambitions or its concern about domestic stability is often by by outsiders, by us, projected outwards you know that that china is interested in in global dominance and part of that i think comes out of our experience of the united states that we that we're kind of drawing a false equivalence between these great powers and assuming that just like the united states that that the Chinese are interested in global dominance. And I agree with you. I don't think that's necessarily the case. And, I mean, I I'm, i wouldn't claim to be an expert on China or Chinese foreign policy or even Australia's relationship with China, but I do think it's really interesting just how much of, of this is framed around, how much of our kind of foreign policy debates, and I'm using air quotes, are framed around China as threat, U.S. is good and that that's done completely uncritically when if you look more closely, you know, the stuff that people get concerned about or ostensibly concerned about with China, things like Belt and Road Initiative or Chinese spying through um, state-owned telecom companies or whatever – is like exactly the stuff the United States has done. Has you know we have all of this historical evidence that the United States has been doing this for decades to the detriment of of global peace and stability. But there's this underlying assumption that when the U.S. does it, it's it's okay and it's justified. And when the Chinese do it, it's not. And so rarely is is that talked about honestly. When I think so much of it is because. The Americans are white, and we are white, and the Chinese are not.
1: Yes, and we have this shared this shared history of liberal. You know, we have this shared liberal democratic system. We have this shared history of alliances, and this shared whiteness. So yeah. China can be very effectively presented as a threatening other. Exactly. Whereas the US, which has this long history of intervening in Australian in Australian affairs and the
0: affairs of other nations, it's seen as much more innocent. Absolutely. And I, I think that, you know, we need to think really carefully about the assumptions that underlie that idea about the global order and our role in it, because it's something that continually comes up in our relationship with the United States. And Australia has continually made the choice to side with the United States in that sense. You know, sometimes we've tried to walk a kind of softer middle ground between the two, precisely because China is so important to our economy and to the global economy but I think Trump is kind of, you know, ramping up that rhetoric around China as threat and increasingly trying to force Australia to choose. And that's partly, I think, what this state dinner is about. It's about a kind of demonstration of Australia being on the US's side. Yeah. So the, the it's America
1: that's really asking us to choose. Yeah. At absolutely. this point.
0: Yeah. And, yeah. I, you know, I think at least the Liberal government has made it pretty clear what their choice is.
1: Yeah. So let's come back to that state dinner. And what do we... What what can you expect from that? I mean, Scott Morrison, he's going to roll up to the White House or is he going to go to Mar-a-Lago to Trump's no, resort? So
0: oh, he, may, he may go to Mar-a-Lago, but the state dinner will be at the White House. So we'll see, I think, you know, the first thing will be Scott and Jenny Morrison being drop, dropped off in the car and we'll see some, you know, some real scrutiny of the handshake.
1: Oh, yes, because yep. Trump is notorious for his kind of... Tough guy handshakes, yep, right? Yeah, that's yep. right
0: for his, for his kind of domine- domineering handshake, and we've and we've seen a successive succession of male global leaders kind of take him on in that. So we've seen Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada, do, Canada do like a really hard handshake, and I'll, I'll put a photo in the in the show notes of one particular handshake where you can actually see the thumbprint left on Trump's hand no. because they've like clasped in this like ridiculous testosterone fueled battle, have like clasped so hard that it's actually actually left an impression <laughs> on his hand. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think Scott Morrison's yeah, yeah. going to do that. But I don't but... think Scott Morrison, he's not
1: interested in challenging, in challenging Trump. He sees him as
0: kind of a comrade in arms, right? Absolutely. I think so. I've seen some kind of ridiculous coverage that's said, you know, maybe Morrison will challenge Trump on this or that issue. Like, I just don't think that's going to happen. I think, you know, even beyond what we've already talked about in terms of the kind of military alliance and and Morrison and the Liberal government wanting to uphold this kind of ANZUS um non-obligation. Also, Morrison and Trump are ideologically closer aligned than you might think.
1: Well, an obvious example comes to mind, and that is Trump's actions on the border with Mexico and the institution of concentration camps on the border, which he's more or less said and and various various trump administration officials have said are modeled on the australian system of
0: of of detention they absolutely are trump's yeah. trump has tweeted about it he's he's tweeted um screenshots of australia's you know those kind of ad, um advertisements that the australian government put out and it's kind of sent all around the pacific Um, saying, you know, you will not be allowed in if you come by boat. Trump tweeted out a bunch of those pictures and was like, this policy worked, this worked in Australia, this is what we're going to do. So ideologically, they're absolutely aligned Mm -hmm. on things like immigration. They're also totally in step when it comes to climate change and inaction on climate change. So recently we've seen Morrison just make a kind of heinous embarrassment of Australia in the Pacific by, by suggesting Australia's well, basically forcing any suggestion that Australia would move away from coal and coal-fired power out of any kind of declaration and then awfully racist comments about basically Pacific people being able to survive climate change because they can come to Australia and pick fruit, right, which is disgusting, but is very Trumpian. You know, Trump says the same kind of thing yeah. about climate change. He's not interested in any kind of action, Um has the White House has been tweeting about um the biggest increase in oil and gas production in history happening under the Trump administration. It even came with like a little you know like a bicep strong arm emoji emoji. So again, okay. totally aligned there when it comes to fossil fuels, when it comes to oil yeah. and coal. So they're probably kind of mutually reinforcing. Yeah, 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 exactly yeah. right. And and kind of, you know, promoting this alliance that's around, you know, not fulfilling obligations of the Paris Accord and things like that. But I also think there's a kind of deeper um ideological alignment around um, for want of a better word, I guess, evangelical Christianity and Morrison's Pentecostalism. Okay,
1: yeah. Yeah. So I mean, tell me more about that. I know that Scott Morrison is a Pentecostal Christian. He believes in what a kind of shorthand term for it is the prosperity gospel. So he believes that as part of his faith, that prosperity is is not only a good thing, but is a necessary thing to pursue yeah, as part absolutely. of your religious and, faith,
0: and also an indication of your inherent goodness as a person. That if you are prosperous, it's because you are you are good, and and I guess God is kind of favouring you because of that goodness. Now, I don't I don't think that you know Trump. Trump's faith necessarily teaches him that, but he's like that's the kind of whole basis for his success, and and his outlook on the world that if you are wealthy, it's because you're smart and a winner and you know successful and good at life, and therefore people who aren't rich are not, and that's a that's a very strong thread in American evangelicalism as well, and and I think that's unusual in this ideological alignment between Trump and Morrison. It's something that we haven't necessarily seen before in the history of the US-Australia relationship. We've seen, I think, kind of political alignment, but that added uh, that added dimension, I suppose, of, of a deeper religious support for that ideology is, is is a little bit different and I think hasn't been spoken about very much. Okay. So they're probably going to have lots to talk about <laughs> and potentially lots to agree on. Yeah.
1: What I mean, hazard a guess. What do you think the any outcomes would be from this meeting?
0: Yeah, look, I mean, I think it's entirely possible that there won't be any outcomes. Like it will just be a kind of nice photo shoot, a chance for Trump to kind of grandstand on the global stage again. You know, he loves these events. He loves the kind of pomp and ceremony of it. You know, there'll be conversations about like what they what they ate, how fancy the dinner was, what Melania was wearing, what Jenny was wearing, that kind of thing. So, so there'll be that kind of focus. Um, there'll be statements. There'll be joint statements. I think. We might see the outcome as kind of part of a broader line towards this kind of, uh, str- I guess, what what people in favour of it would be call would call strengthening of the special relationship, and that the closer alignment of you know potentially the the US and Australia when it comes to military interventionism, the Americans especially will, I think, hope that it's an indication that Australia is leaning towards the US in terms of siding with the US in their trade war against China. And, uh, you know, on the Australian side, again, I think it's an opportunity for Australia to look important on the world stage, which we don't often do, you know. We're a pretty small fish. and, And I think Morrison especially will be pretty glad of an opportunity to have this kind of international profile because I do think this will get more... Attend, more press attention at least in the US than Turnbull's visit or anything like that because as we've said it's only the second state dinner that Trump has held so we'll get Morrison lots of attention and there'll be lots of talk about the history of the special relationship and the really close friendship that's unique you know with the US the US doesn't have a friend like Australia and you know and then afterwards probably everything will just go back to normal in the US and they'll stop thinking about us again. Yeah and that's probably why it's such
1: so good to have your expertise here to give to give us some you know really welcome reminders of the what has actually happened in the history of that relationship and what America's relationships with other nations really do look yep. like.
0: Yeah and I think also kind of what's at stake like sometimes we see Australia's relationship with the US as kind of inevitable and a thing that we don't have control over but there have been moments in history where Australia has pursued a more independent foreign policy path, and it hasn't damaged us. You know, it's actually... I think, done us quite good to, to consider our place really carefully in, in the US's kind of strategic map of the world. And, you know, to, to go back to your early, earlier metaphor, to, to maybe not always be a lapdog because the kind of, you know, negotiations 101 would suggest that actually, you know, sometimes if you push back a little bit, you might get a little bit more back. But, but historically, the Australian government doesn't seem to have kind of followed that path when it comes to the US. And unfortunately looks like they're not going to be following that path this time around. No,
1: unfortunately it doesn't. So to wrap things up, Scott Morrison is
0: going to the US. He's going to go to the White House. But one place he's not going is New York. That's right. He is not going to New York. He and Trump are both skipping the UN Climate Action Summit, which is happening on the Monday after his visit. They've both said they will not be going. I think it's safe to assume that they won't be attending the global climate strike, which is happening, in fact, on the same day as the state dinner on Friday night. Um, And that, again, you know, as we've talked about, is a kind of reflection of the ideological unity of Trump and Morrison when it comes to lots of things, but especially when it comes to climate change.
1: Yeah. And that's what we'll be talking about in the next episode of the Barely Getting By podcast. We're going to take a look at the history of climate change activism, what's happening in the present and where this might go in the future. But just one more note on things happening this weekend. What's what's happening for you this weekend, Em? Um, go pies is what's happening this weekend. I'll refrain from any comment on that.
0: So thanks for listening to us on the Barely Getting By podcast. We will put some show notes up with the episode with links to some articles and things that we've spoken about, some images that we've spoken about, and some um, further reading. You can get more information uh, on us via Twitter. You can follow us. I'm at Emma Shortus. And I'm at Dr. Claude. And Chloe's upping her her follower count steadily, so we'll hope to get some more followers in the next couple of weeks.
1: That would require me to actually tweet, and I can't say I'm that enthusiastic at this
0: point. But I will be putting some good gifts of Dolly Parton up this yes, week, so that's right. I don't know, maybe that'll earn me a few follows. Yeah, definitely more Dolly, Dolly Parton. So we'll, we hope you'll tune in to the next episode of the Barely Getting By podcast. Thanks for listening.
1: Barely Getting By is presented by Emma Shortis and Chloe Ward. We'd like to thank RMIT for their support in producing and distributing the podcast.